Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. This lecture is entitled, Why Titus Should Have Worn a Mask. It is a recording of a, a lecture given in 2020 as part of a Tisha B'Av live stream service presented by Hamayan in Melbourne. The lecture can be watched on David's YouTube channel or on davidsolomon.online. Unfortunately, David gave an excellent lecture last night, uh, just after Eicha, which we would have loved to have presented today. But that recording did not work, so we hope you enjoy his talk from 2020 instead. Following Eicha, we have to uh, meditate a bit upon um, some of the larger themes that are happening. And of course, as you would know, um, as it says, you know, as they say in the classics, this is a real Tishabov. And I'm not sure how many of the audience are that are joining us for this are in uh, Melbourne. But if you are in Melbourne, you know that uh, it doesn't get more bleak than it has been for the last couple of weeks. The The weather has been grey and oppressive and depressing and disgusting and it's cold. Plus, you've got corona. People are scurrying around the streets of the city wearing masks. And on top of that, it's been the nine days. And so uh, this year, we really feel it. And especially... Perhaps nothing more impactful than sitting on the floor in our own homes, not going to shul, but actually bringing Tisha B'Av inside our homes uh, because uh, we can't go out. And uh, I want to share with you just briefly uh, something that happened to me a couple of nights ago. And uh, I don't normally talk about personal moments, but this was a personal moment of revelation and that actually... uh, uh, is very much in tune with the couple of words I'm going to say tonight. By the way, I'm, I'm not going to talk for a long time. This is not some kind of hour-long lecture. This is just a uh, just a few minutes of discussion because uh, I don't think uh, people are sad enough on Tisha B'Av without having to listen to me uh, prattle on about things. But I do want to share. I do want to share this thought and a personal moment because in the middle of all this bleakness and in the middle of this this awful Corona winter in Melbourne cut off from the rest of the world, uh, in the midst of the darkness, uh, someone showed me, a friend showed me in their garden, uh, an almond tree. And the almond tree, this is just two nights ago, two nights before Tisha B'Av, in the middle of all of this, the almond tree had begun to blossom. And I suddenly had this uh, fantastic realization about what the almond tree actually represents. In the very first chapter of the book of Jeremiah, in Yirmiyahu, so, and, and, and it's uh, the beginning of the whole vision of the prophecy about the destruction of the temple. God says to Jeremiah, he says, what do you see? And Jeremiah says, I see an almond branch. And uh, God says, well, that shows the speed with which I'm going to bring about the events that are going to lead to the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash. It's going to open from the north and it's going to happen very quickly. And that's why you're seeing an almond. Because an almond is called, 
is not just called, it is the earliest, it's shaked, it is the earliest of the blossoms. And that, on one hand, for Jeremiah, was a symbol of the, of the speediness of, of the delivery of God's word. But what I realized when I looked at this almond blossom is the fact that even though we were in the absolute midst of darkness and winter and corona, that this was a sign that there will be a spring. Winter will end. The darkness will end. There will be a spring. It was a tremendous symbol of hope for me personally, because I hate winter. So the idea is that there will be a spring. This winter will end and it will be, once again, there'll be a return of, uh, of the world that we, that we are all asking for, Chadesh Yemenu Kekedem, a world that we're kind of grieving that we lost. And that theme, uh, which actually the rabbi alluded to uh, in, his, uh, in his introduction, that theme uh, is really the inner essential message of Tisha B'Av, that in the midst of our greatest tragedy, that in the midst of darkness, and there are many tragedies on Tisha B'Av, but in all of them is born a tremendous blossom of hope at the same time. And it is that hope that comes uh, together with the tragedy, but sustains us through these periods. And I want to talk tonight uh, for a few minutes about uh, a particular uh, example of that, but to go a little deeper into the idea of Tisha B'Av and the idea of what that story represents. The story is contained in the Gemara, in the Talmud. It's also found in Midrash uh, in some places, uh, but uh, the version that we know most well is the Talmud. You see, you're not really supposed to learn Torah on the night of Tisha B'Av, but there are some texts that you are allowed to learn. And uh, one of those texts is, of course, the whole section uh, round about uh, Daf Nun Vav, uh, 50, you know, fifty-sixth folio of the Tractate Gitin, uh, which deals with the events that led up, the tragic events that led up to the destruction of the of the Second Temple, and you know the whole story there of Kamtsa and Bar Kamtsa and all of the horrible things that happened, and that I'm sure uh, uh, people are familiar with. But in the course of telling that story uh, the Gemara talks a little bit about what happened to the Roman general Titus and uh, it's now before we get into what the Midrash says about Titus um, in, in a specific sense that we want to talk about uh, I just want to say a few words about Titus himself the title of this talk by the way is why Titus should have worn a face mask and I'm sure by the end of it, you'll agree with me that that would have been advisable for him personally. If the rabbi's version of this was uh, what actually happened, because before we even get into it, Titus, the Roman general, the son of Vespasian, who conquered Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, came back to, came back to Rome, uh, and ultimately, after his father died a few years later, he himself became emperor, is a very complex figure in history because we have two very, very competing uh, versions of Titus. And what it boils down to is basically the rabbis against everyone else. Because Chazal, the great sages of Israel, the great sages of the Talmud, saw in Titus a tremendously wicked person. He was, they call him Titus Harasha, Titus the Wicked. 
He destroyed the temple cruelly and arrogantly. He hated Jews. He challenged God. Titus comes down to us through rabbinic tradition as not just any standard garden variety rasha, but as a really, really one of the outstanding rashaim, one of the outstanding wicked people of history on a personal and public level. And amazingly, that picture is unique because everybody else, all other historians, whether we are talking about the great Jewish historian Josephus or we're talking about other Roman historians, they all seem to regard Titus as in a very, very benign light. In other words, yeah, sure. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not suggesting that a guy who conquered uh, Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took thousands of Jews away in slavery, had a triumphal march in Rome uh, to celebrate the destruction of the temple, is a tzaddik. But he does come across in other historical perspectives as someone who was actually quite reasonable. He turned out to be, he was only emperor for a short while, but he turned out to be uh, a benign and good emperor, relatively speaking, to other emperors. And uh, even on a personal level, there were certain aspects to things that he did and that he said, uh, which uh, are, are quite impressive. Uh, one example would be that according to Roman historians, uh, Titus refused to take on a victory laurel uh, during his parade, uh, you know, the thing they wear on their head for to symbolize the victory, he goes, because it wasn't such a big victory, because all I did was I vanquished a people that had already been abandoned by their own God. And this is a level of spiritual insight that's quite uh, quite fascinating. There were other times and recording uh, episodes, and not just by Josephus, where um, Titus was supportive of Jewish communities. He didn't seem to have anything personal against Jews. In fact, he was deeply and emotionally involved in the Herodian family. He was having a relationship with uh, one of the Herodian princesses who he wanted to make his wife. So it, it doesn't match. The two pictures are very, very different. The two pictures that we have of Titus that come down to us either via Chazal, the sages of Israel, or via uh, history at large. Now, in the Tractate of Gittin, in the Talmud, uh, the story is told that when Titus went back to Rome and uh, he challenged God uh, in a number of different ways, saying, oh, you know, God's not going to get me, etc. Um, and so God uh, decided that uh, what would happen to Titus is that a very, very small little thing, a living thing, uh, the smallest possible little living thing, which the which the Midrash refers to as a yetush. It's an important word, that yetush. So we generally understand a yetush to be a kind of a a gnat, G-N-A-T. I'm not 100% sure what a gnat is. It's extremely small, but uh, something very, very small. But whatever a yetush is, the, its defining quality, the rabbis tell us, and why this... Uh, was the instrument to attack Titus uh, in revenge for his horrible arrogance and cruelty, is that this particular being called the Yetush was an animal that only consumed and never excreted anything. It only consumed. And it was that very animal that was going to fly up the nose of Titus and into his brain... And over the course of the next seven years, would eat out the inside of his skull. Awful, awful thing to happen to a person. And of course, 
hence the title, Why Titus Should Have Worn a Face Mask. What's interesting is that that particular characteristic, something that consumes and doesn't excrete, that's the tiniest possible living entity, to go up the nose of Titus and into the inside of his head sounds a lot like a virus. But whether it was a virus, a viral being, or whether it was some kind of small insect, it ate out of Titus and it killed him. And the rabbis of the Talmud tell us that when he died, and some of them even say, oh, we were there when this happened, uh, they opened up his skull and they found a giant creature that looked something like a bird. It was like two kilograms big and had sharp claws. And there it was sitting there and it flew away or whatever it did. So that's the Midrash. And uh, that Midrash itself, before we even really get onto the inner message that I want to talk about with that Midrash, uh, that Midrash itself uh, was cited in uh, controversies about Midrash much later on in Jewish history. If we look at the 16th century debates, for example, between Azari de Rossi on the one hand, the, the great critic of uh, Midrash, uh, not criticizing Midrash because he didn't see its spiritual value, but Azari de Rossi's project was to really critique the literality of some Midrash and to argue how they could be understood allegorically, versus the opinion, say, of the counter-proposition to that in the 16th century, which would have been the Maharal of Prague in the sixth, late 16th, early 17th century, who was arguing the opposite and saying, no, they are literal. And especially a midrash like this, uh, where the rabbis say they were there, and there's no medical reason that I can't see that that couldn't have happened, so that's literal. And Azari de Ross is going, no, that's not literal, that, in fact, is an allegory. And what is the allegory of that? Is that Titus was consumed uh, by the very quality of arrogance, the idea of uh, consuming without excreting, and is, which is really Titus as the symbol of the Roman Empire, which is pretty much what it was. So it was, it was that very little creature to show also uh, how powerful God is because even the smallest creature could defeat uh, that level of arrogance. And so he wanted to argue for those qualities inside the Midrash and the Maharal is going, no, that's a little Midrash. So just to put that in perspective, that when we talk about Titus, we're already talking about someone who has a complex historical persona. And when we talk about that Midrash, we're talking about a famous Midrash that has a complex reception history. But there is a level of that Midrash that's not often spoken about. And because it is a very deep Kabbalistic secret. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh, so it's a Kabbalistic secret. So you're just going to tell us on YouTube. And the reality is, is that I can tell you this because it uh, has, for the last 150 years or so, it has been known because it's been printed in books. And if things are printed in books, then I imagine that we can talk about them. But uh, we don't find a real elaboration on this point before the 19th century. So my understanding is that this was a Kabbalistic sod, uh, a mystery that really wasn't shared in writing uh, until the 19th century, when we could start to kind of see its picture. And uh, particularly found in the writings of the Kabbalistic students of the Gaon of Vilna, whose understanding was intense on the way in which... Uh, look, um, it's not going to come as a shock 
to some of you, but others it might be surprising to realize that the more you study Jewish history, the more you realize that in fact the reason for the world's existence is Jewish history. All of it is one great cosmic pathway that is leading to a universal consciousness of the divine. And really, that is something that the particular Kabbalistic track of the Gaon of Vilna, but also others, understood very, very powerfully. And it is the idea or the premise underlying the Kabbalistic understanding of that Midrash that I'm going to share with you now. What is the animal, this being, that went in up Titus's nose and into his brain and ate him out from the inside? What is that? It's a yutush. What is the gematria, the numeric value of yutush? It's 716. Now, I know you're sitting there going, oh, 716, what does that say to me? Well, 716 is twice 358. And those of you who stay up all night uh, studying Kabbalistic texts will know that 358 is a very, very significant gematria because it is the numeric value of the word Mashiach. Yetush is twice the value of Mashiach. What went inside Titus's nose, we are, Kabbalistic thought tells us, is the spirit of Mashiach. On the one hand, Mashiach ben David, the Messiah, the descendant of King David, and Mashiach ben Yosef, the Messiah, the descendant of Joseph. It is the messianic idea that entered into Titus as a symbol of Rome. Listen carefully because I can't say too much on the layers of this, but entered into Titus as the symbol of Rome and ate the Roman Empire from within and ultimately killed it. That idea was born out historically. The Romans did not really have a concept of divine intervention in history, but they also didn't have a concept of history as a cosmic event that buried inside all of the events in history and behind all of the events in history, uh, which are determined by God, is the concept of the return of the Jewish people constantly and the renewal of the Jewish people constantly and the idea of hope. The idea that these tragedies and these exiles will have an end and that at the end, that end is embodied in the whole of the messianic idea. The idea of Mashiach ben Yosef is the overcoming of physical challenges and the idea of Mashiach ben David is the idea of the overcoming of spiritual challenges. These two come together in these two aspects of hope in order to give us a promise of a better world. And ultimately, that's the spirit that entered Rome. The messianic idea is like a virus. But obviously, the rise of uh, Christianity hasn't brought 
everything that the Jewish people would have wanted from the messianic idea and divine consciousness coming to the world. But it's very interesting because if you look exactly 716 years after the destruction of the Bet HaMikdash, you find yourself right at that time, just before the 800, just before the year 800, you find yourself right at that time where we start to see the establishment, the ultimate establishment of the Holy Roman Empire, which was uh, a Christian empire. It was an empire founded and premised upon a messianic idea. But in the intervening several hundred years, that idea had basically destroyed the Roman Empire from within. And that is what Kabbalists tell us is the essential idea behind the Nat or the Yitush that went into Titus. And we do know, we do know in a literal sense also that Titus died young. I mean, he was only emperor for a couple of years. It's not like he lived to 120 and then he died, they opened up his head and there was this thing in it. It killed him. History tells us that he died of a fever. Others say he was poisoned. The mode of his death is not so much the point here. What is the point here is that Titus became, was an ultimate symbol. And that is why Chazal were willing to go perhaps a little bit not on track with the historical picture. But when they talk about Titus, they're really talking about the wickedness and the arrogance of the Roman Empire itself which destroyed the Bet HaMikdash without even a second thought. Oh, well, maybe a second thought, because according to some, Titus didn't actually even want to destroy it. So it does need to conflict with the personal picture of Titus. But the other aspect of this is also very interesting, because some people say, oh, well, that's, you know, that's, uh, that would be uh, Tisha B'Av of mourning the destruction of the Second Temple, but it's not the only thing that happened on Tisha B'Av. And if you look at every single major episode which is attributed to Tisha B'Av, somewhere in that is an echo of that idea, of the idea of the twin values of hope entering into the darkest challenges and providing a promise that there will be a return and that there will be a future. If we look at the very first Tisha B'Av, go back to the very beginning, the very first Tisha B'Av, the very first Tisha B'Av was what? I'm asking just the two guys here in the audience. What was the first two Tisha, the first ever Tisha B'Av? Was, huh? It was, of course, the episode, well, uh, I don't know what's going on in, uh, back in Gan Eden, but the, 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 first, uh, the first one that we really point to is the episode with the Miragli, the episode with the spies. And if we look carefully at that episode, the episode uh, of the Miragli, the episode of the spies, we see that which... When God said, you know, that you're complaining for nothing now on this day throughout history, you're going to complain for a real reason. Ten of the spies came back with that evil report and two didn't. Two came back with the, with, with the good report. And who were they? Kalev ben Yifuneh of the tribe of Yehuda and Yehoshua ben Nun of the tribe of Ephraim. Kalev ben Yifuneh, who was going to go on and become and form what would going forward would be the Davidic line that would ultimately produce Mashiach ben David and Ephraim and, and Yehoshua bin Nun of the tribe of Ephraim who would go on to be the progenitor of the line that would create the Mashiach, the son of Yosef. These two represented this tremendous idea of hope, this tremendous idea that the world will be a better place. That's why, I mean... And, and there are so many psukim that back up this idea, not just the pasuk in Echa, you know, 
Ruach Hapenu Mashiach Hashem, the spirit of our breath, the spirit of our nose, the Messiah of Hashem, Nilkad Bishchitotam, is caught up in their traps. The idea of Mashiach goes into the darkness. It goes into the very cause of that darkness and as, as, as a blossom of hope and kills it from within. And uh, also, also, also by, uh, also by uh, Kalev. Yep. Ruach, Ruach Acheret Imo. He had a different type of spirit. The whole concept of Ruach. And it is Ruach that is at the heart of uh, the whole of the Messianic idea. So I uh, want uh, that we should have a meaningful Tisha B'Av, a very impactful Tisha B'Av, one that, that uh, really uh, brings home the, imperv- uh, the, the, the impermanence of the world and its various situations. We will get through this crisis. There will be uh, a new dawn and uh, we all pray that as the rabbi actually alluded to at the beginning of the introduction uh, with the famous words of Chazal about Tisha B'Av, the famous words of the rabbis, Bo Bayom Nolad Menachem, on that very day is the comforter of Israel born. And the, what, and the essential idea in that, the essential idea is that the true harbinger of comfort, we're going to have Shabbat Nachamu in a couple of days, but the true harbinger of comfort is the... Uh, promise of a better world and a world which will see the Jewish people uh, in in the land of Israel safe and secure but safe and secure not because we have the strongest army but safe and secure because the world itself is at peace you know when I was uh, just uh, saying Mincha this afternoon I realized something that I hadn't actually thought about for a long time because at the end of the Amidah we say she bane bet hamikdash that the temple will be rebuilt veten chelkenu betoratecha and give us our chelik our part in your Torah. What, what 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 does that even mean? What does it mean that we have a part in the Torah? If it had said let the, let, may the temple be rebuilt and uh, give us our part in the land of Israel, well we know that. But the whole point is that there's no land of Israel without the Torah. And there's no Torah without the land of Israel. The two are mutually dependent. So it is not just a case that we are praying for the restoration of, you know, peace and security in the Jewish people in the land of Israel. We're also praying for the construction of the Bet HaMikdash, which is why we still fast on Tisha B'Av, even though we have the state of Israel and we have control over Jerusalem. But we still pray for the return of the Bet HaMikdash because the Bet HaMikdash is a symbol, ultimately will be a symbol that the Jewish people are in the land of Israel in the way that the Torah intends and that the land of Israel is a center for all nations and that the temple is a symbol of peace for all nations and that is the true uh, picture that the blossom of hope is going to give us and uh, I hope everyone has uh, has an accom- uh, you know a, a, a not too difficult fast and that uh, uh, by this time uh, tomorrow that Bo Bayom Nolad Menachem has become uh, uh, a manifest reality. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.